the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. Um, we are going to be actually landing the plane today, and uh, we'll be in Nehemiah 13. Uh, it's the last chapter in the book, and we're going we're gonna to finish off this series, the Rebuild series that we've been a part of for the last uh, couple months. What, do you, what have you guys thought of Nehemiah? Pretty awesome book, right? There's so many good things in there. Um, I'd encourage you, once we're done, uh, which is after today, uh, this week, go read Nehemiah now for your, your personal self. And um, it'll be cool for you to go through and then, you know, some of those reminders of those things that now you know uh, will pop up and uh, God will be able to minister to you, hopefully in a cool and new and fresh way. Uh, the title of the message today is Compromised. Compromised. Um, have you guys ever started something really well and finished really bad? You guys ever done anything like that? I know this happens to me more than I'd like it to, but I think it's just something about our nature. We like things that are new. And so sometimes, right, we get some ideas. We're like, man, we're going to commit to doing this. It's going to be awesome. Um, maybe it's like a project. Like maybe you're like, I'm never excited about a project, but this one you're really excited about. And then you, you know, you're like, okay, hey, got this grand vision for it. But then by the end, you just kind of like lose steam. And then it just doesn't turn out the way that you had hoped Right? Maybe it was a paper. You're like, okay, I'm going to knock this paper out in one night. And the first page is like, oh man, this is a masterpiece. I'm going to get book of the year award. We're going to publish this thing. And then by the last page, you're like, wow, no one should ever read this. Um, I know this happens to me with cleaning. Sometimes, do you guys ever get in like cleaning modes? Uh, probably some of you need to get in cleaning modes a little more often. Um, but sometimes like, you know, whether something's messy, I'm like, oh, I just need, I just need it clean. And so you're like, you have this grand plan, right? You're like, I'm going to clean the baseboards to the top of the ceiling and everything in between. And so you start on maybe cleaning your room. And you're like, mom's going to be so proud. It's going to be spotless. And then by the end, you're just shoving stuff under your bed because you're so over it. And your, your grand commitment didn't end so well. Well, unfortunately, Nehemiah 13, this last chapter, uh, doesn't end so well for the people. There are some really great things that God was doing in and among the people and the walls have been built. There's things that have been accomplished and God's not done with his work. But unfortunately, we're going to see in chapter 13 that the people began to compromise in their commitments uh, to the Lord. Uh, now, if you are following along with us through our series and you come on a weekly basis, then you'll know uh, last week we are in chapter 10, but this week we're in chapter 13. That is intentional. It's purposeful. I want to encourage you, chapter 11 and 12, they're no doubt a part of the Bible. There's good things in there. Uh, but I felt today was necessary to kind of jump right into 13. Uh, but just so you know, uh, chapter 11, you can go back and read it on your own. I want to encourage you to do that this week. Um, chapter 11 is, is basically a chapter full of names. And basically it lists people who uh, were now dwelling in the city, right? They were really working on population. And so they... Uh, they work on people who are, they list people who are in the city living there and then also outside kind of regions, uh, next door neighbor type of thing. Um, and so those living in the city and living outside the city by family and tribe. And then in chapter 12, uh, which we won't be looking at today, uh, is really they, they get together and they do one last final dedication of the wall. That they get together, they, they uh, have these Thanksgiving choirs and uh, there's this just this period of really gladness, I almost wish uh, Nehemiah ended chapter 12. I really do. Uh, but chapter 13 did happen, and we're going to see that today, and it's there for a reason, and it's there for our 
learning. You guys ready? Okay, the big idea for today is this. A genuine commitment doesn't ensure an uncompromised finish. Now, if you can recall back to last week, we, we went over chapter 10, which was um, that chapter where they got together. Remember, they, they uh, had this idea of this covenant between them and God. They wrote it down. They had the different leaders seal it, meaning they signed it, and they committed to these certain things. Unfortunately, what we're going to see in this chapter is them compromising in those commitments. And so I believe that their commitment was genuine. I just believe they got off track. They began to compromise. And so the big idea today is a genuine commitment doesn't ensure an uncompromised finish, meaning that there's not uh, an ending that isn't as good as the beginning. So let's pray and we'll get into Nehemiah 13. Sound good? Yes? Acknowledge that you're at least alive. I see your eyes, but I don't, I don't hear you at all. Okay, Father, we come before you and um, we thank you that, um, that we can come here today and, and learn from your word. We thank you for this series and this book and things that you've shown us and exposed to us and done in us and encouraged uh, us in. And we just pray that, that we would finish strong, Lord, that uh, unlike the, what we're going to see today, Lord, that we would not be compromised even in our, in our desire and our pursuit of you. Um, Lord, I pray that the truths found in this book would, would come alive, that you would help me to illustrate and explain them and apply them accurately. And um, Lord, I, I just pray that as we leave this room and go home, that the word wouldn't just stay here, but it would, it would go with us, Lord, and we would begin to be doers and not just hearers. And so we thank you ultimately for Jesus and the eternal life that we have in you. And we pray that we would just continue to grow in our relationship with you. And we all said Jesus' name, amen. All right, amen. Yes? Okay, you, know, you guys know what amen means? It means like you agree with it, right? It means like you're like, yeah, amen. You agree. If you don't agree with my prayer, I guess you don't have to say amen. Um, but okay, Nehemiah chapter 13. So um, we see here that the text doesn't make it super clear. But somewhere in chapter 13, Nehemiah uh, goes back to Persia. Does anyone remember Nehemiah's occupation? What, he, what, he, what we first found him doing in chapter one? Charlotte? Cupbearer, right? He was the king's cupbearer. Not just that he, he held cups all day, but he was that, that taste tester for the king to ensure that the king wouldn't get poisoned. It's a very important and close job with the king. And at that point, uh, Nehemiah didn't ask to quit his job. He asked for an absence of leave. Well, this absence of leave that the king ended up granting him has now come into a 12-year gap. So from chapter 1 all the way to chapter 13, where we are today, there, it's a, a course of time of 12 years. So I want you to note that. That's something you would want to write down, 12 years, okay? After this 12-year period, you know, Nehemiah looks around and he sees, okay, Things are going pretty good. Walls are built. That's awesome. Gates are up. People are in God's word. People are worshiping. What's that? Compromise? I will we'll explain it this entire study. You'll, you'll find out. If you don't know at the end, come and find me because that means I did not a good job. Okay? So uh, he looks around. He's like, okay, like people are worshiping. Things are starting to be back in order the way that they're supposed to be. So he's like, okay, I had this commitment to the king. And so I'm going to go back and, and be faithful to my word. Another example of Nehemiah's faithfulness. And so he goes back and during this time, things begin to unravel here. 
Uh, Nehemiah, though, he was faithful. Think about it. He was faithful to build the walls, protect the people. He established a leadership. He helped lead God's people to God's word. They made these commitments. He made sure the city was populated. Man, he, I mean, he's coming back to Persia, mission accomplished. He really set the people up for success. Yeah, what we're, what we're going to see is chapter 13 is a chapter full of compromise. That in his absence, the people started not to fulfill the commitments that they had just made uh, not so long before. They started to compromise in their commitments. And just a little side note for you. Whenever you are away from someone that is a spiritual leader in your life, whether it's maybe even mom or dad or a leader here uh, in church, uh, that shows you who you really are when they're, when they're gone. Um, it shows you, okay, where do you, are your commitments to looking a certain way to certain people or is it to the Lord? And what we're gonna see is that uh, the, their commitments seem to be very connected to Nehemiah, which is not a good thing. And so, uh, guys, the Lord desires commitment and Satan wants compromise. That this will be the battle of your Christian walk for the rest of your life. That God every day is gonna want you to renew your commitment to him in a fresh and new way. And every day Satan is going to work his best to get you to compromise in those commitments that you have previously made. Whether it's just simply the commitment to follow Jesus, Satan know that he's gonna do everything he can to get you to compromise that decision. And then the small commitments that you make to God, I'm never gonna do this again, I'm never gonna do that again. Uh, Satan would love to see you compromise in those areas of commitments. And Satan wins when we do, he wins. And so ultimately he's gonna not win, but he wins those little battles in our life, even for the Christian. James 1.14 says, but each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Satan knows us, he knows how we work. He, he sees the commitments that we've made to God and he hates them. And so he's gonna do his best to entice. To entice means to kind of get to, um, you know, it, it's to lay a trap, it's to trick, usually lying and evolved. And Satan loves to get us, to entice us to compromise. And he makes it look good, usually. Now the word compromise which will hopefully answer your question. In this context, with how I'm using it, it means to accept standards that are lower than desirable. It's to accept standards that are lower than desirable. And guys, sin always has the appearance of this amazing desirability. That's why you do it, because it looks good. This is gonna be something beneficial to me. But sin always leads you compromise in those commitments to the Lord, always leads you lower than what you were even expecting. And the Christian life is that battle of commitment versus compromise. God wants the best for your life. He wants he, he, the things that he's asked you to do and, and committed to, those will ensure that you live uh, a, an abundant life, the Bible describes. But when we start sinning, that's when we start compromising and we start living at lower standards than God would desire. And so are you guys ready to get into 13? Yes? long introduction, but uh, over this chapter, we're going to see four ways that the people compromise in their commitments. So how many? Sorry, I couldn't hear you. How, how many? Four. We're going to see four different ways, and we're going to see that the people's downward spiral of sin 
and what Nehemiah has to return to. We're going to see in a moment that Nehemiah gets another um, absence uh, um, accepted by the king. So he's able to come back to Jerusalem. We don't know how long. Could have been a year. Could have been a two years that he was away. Uh, it's not very clear. But we know that when he comes back, <laughs> he sees a city that is compromised. And so one last thing I want to note before we get into number one is that I believe through this book that it is an intentional progression of compromises. What do I mean? I mean that one leads to another. That when we do the first one, which you'll see that we'll just work our way through the chapter and one will come after another. That we'll take a a chunk of scripture, then go to the next one. And these lead into one another. There's a progression here. So I want you to keep that in mind. Yes. That's okay. We'll, we'll, at the end of the message, talk to me, okay, if it still doesn't make sense. So compromise just means giving up your commitments. Like you make something, you make a commitment to the Lord, and then you, you don't follow through on that commitment that you made. You do something outside of that, that promise to the Lord. And so number one, uh, we see that they compromise by making room for the enemy. They compromise by making room for the enemy, What do I mean? Well, let's look at verses one through nine. You guys in chapter 13? Yes? All right, word. Verse one, the Bible says, on that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever come into the assembly of God because they had not met the children of Israel with bread and water but hired Balaam against them to curse them. However, our God turned the curse into a blessing. God's usually able to do that. So it was when they had heard the law that they separated all the mixed multitude from Israel. This is the only highlight in the entire chapter, okay? Everything else is downward spiral. Verse four, the Bible says, now before this, uh, Eliashim, the priest, he was the high priest, having authority over the storerooms of the house of God, was allied with Tobiah. You guys remember Tobiah? Anyone remember who Tobiah was? He's an enemy of the Lord, right? He was one of those early on. We see him uh, pop his head up in chapter two and then again in a dramatic way, chapter four, that he was against the children of Israel. And it says that he was, the, the high priest was allied with Tobiah. Verse five, and he had prepared for him a large room where previously they had stored the grain offerings, the frankincense, the articles, the tithes of grain, the new wine and oil, which were commanded to be given to the Levites and singers and gatekeepers and the offerings for the priests. But during all this, I was not in Jerusalem. Remember, it's Nehemiah writing. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Then after certain days, I obtained leave from the king and I came to Jerusalem and discovered the evil that Eliashim had done for Tobiah in preparing a room for him in the courts of the house of God. And it grieved me bitterly. Therefore, I threw all the household goods of Tobiah out of the room. Then I commanded them to cleanse the rooms and I brought back into them the articles of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. Wild, wild stuff that's going on here. Uh, Eliashib, the high priest, is introduced to us uh, for um, a, 
Again, we see him in chapter three, uh, but we're gonna call him Eli today because I don't feel like saying Eliashib, which is a crazy name that we're just gonna call him Eli today. Deal? Okay, so we see that the, in the first few verses, there's a highlight that uh, they heard God's word and they adjusted accordingly to separate from these people. Ammon and Moab were different countries and they were also at, they were enemies of Israel. They were against their very existence. And yet there were some of those people living in the city. And so God had commanded them to separate uh, for the sake of unity. Uh, But we see that Eli, the high priest, and you guys know what a high priest is, right? The high priest back in Judaism was the top dog. He was the guy, uh, he was not elevated or to be worshiped, but he was the the supreme religious authority uh, over the people. Now, of course, he had restrictions. He, He wasn't like a king. But he was like, imagine like Pastor Jack, the senior pastor of, of them. That was the high priest. And we see that it started with him that he began to compromise. That he had this incredible authority, this high priestship given to him by God. Yet he began to abuse his authority and began to compromise. Uh, somehow, we don't know, but the Bible says, you remember when we read that he was allied to Tobiah? That word allied, it speaks of some kind of close connection. It seems like almost there were some family ties there. There were some family connections that Eli had with Tobiah, who was an Ammonite, meaning he was a part of a country uh, sworn enemy against Israel. We'll see later on, uh, I think it's in uh, the, the later part of chapter 13, but we also know that Eli's son, hey, so follow me, Eli's son, married Sanballat's daughter. Do you remember who Sanballat was? Him and Tobiah, those were like the two friends that were enemies against God. And so even Eli's son was married to Sanballat's daughter. That there was, this is the idea, guys, that there was this close connection between uh, the high priest and God's enemy. And because of this, because of this connection, uh, he began to use God's resources for the enemy's purposes. You guys hear me? He began to use God's resources for the enemy's uh, um, purposes. And I mean, hopefully you see this picture of how gnarly this was that uh, the, the Bible says, describes right here that uh, this high priest Eli, he goes to one of the storerooms within the temple grounds, which was a, it was a room that they would have uh, all of the, right, it mentioned oil and grain. It was basically everything in that room was to supply for the people who served in the temple. It was to supply their livelihood. It was to supply for them money and, um, and food. It was, it was what they were to get paid for so that they could live and yet always still be at the temple. And the Bible says that he comes into this storeroom. He says, let's get all this stuff that has to do with God. Let's get this out of here. And uh, Tobiah, you can move in here. Not just move into Jerusalem, but move into the very central part of the worship of God. And he began to invite the enemy in in this way. But notice that he had to remove something to be able to make room for Tobiah. And here's the principle. When you make room for the enemy in your life, you have to tell the Lord to move out. Not completely, but at least part of that area that when you make room for the enemy in your life, you have to tell the Lord to move out. What do I mean? 
Well, for you, let's this, this, this make this applicable because it's God's word and it's to apply to our lives. In what way, maybe you haven't come to, you know, found a, a room in the church and said, okay, let's get all this children's ministry stuff out of there and we'll have, I don't know. <laughs> it's a silly illustration, but hopefully you understand what I'm saying. But in what way have you made room for the enemy in your life? Right, because the Bible says that the believer is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Hey, God, it, it, look, it looks different now. And so we are representative of the temple. So what room in your life have you allowed the enemy to come in? Maybe it's a small room. Maybe it's a closet. But what areas of your life have you allowed the enemy to call his own? He says, okay, this is what you know, if the enemy says he has any jurisdiction, it would be over some area of your life. Is it the room of fear that you allow? you like, you just let that fester and let that stay there? Is it the room of a hot temper? Do you get mad really easily? Is it the room of bad language? Is it the room of bitterness towards someone, undealt with bitterness or unforgiveness? Is it the room of laziness? Whatever it might be, I don't know. I don't know you uh, super personally, every aspect of your life, but you know you know where you've allowed pieces of ungodliness in your life. So much so that, that it is like that ungodly, whatever it might be, has settled down. That you've allowed some kind of room in your life for Tobiah to move his stuff in. Guys, I think the Bible is very clear that when you begin to give the enemy an inch in your life, just a small, it's just a small room, he will begin to take a mile. You're like, well, I just gave him a little closet. It's a little closet of ungodliness. Just my, you know, stuff in my closet. No one has to know. The enemy's never satisfied with just a room. You begin to go to the next room and the next room. Guys, that's compromise. At its very core, that is compromise when you make room for the enemy in your life, whatever that might be for you. If you give him an inch, he takes a mile. Does that make sense? You guys following? But check out Nehemiah's reaction. Right? I mean, just picture how Nehemiah is feeling right now. He's gone for a year or two. He totally set them up for success. He comes back, and I'm sure the first place he went, obviously, was the temple area. He's like, all right, see how things are going. Excited to be back. Feels good. So you live here for 12 years. I'm excited. What's, what's happening? Is that Tobiah? Is, did he just enter that room? And he opens the door and sees there's a bed in there, a dresser. It's even pictures up on the wall of Tobiah and his family. And Nehemiah, first he says that Nehemiah is really grieved. That more than, before the anger came, he, he was grieved. He was hurt. I mean, think about the blood, sweat, and tears that Nehemiah has put 12 years of his life. Uh, man, he, he has he poured prayer after fasting, after service uh, into this thing. And, and, and to try to keep God's enemies out. And now all of a sudden, one is literally living in on temple grounds. And so he, first it says that he's grieved, but then uh, he gets a little upset. And he orders all of Tobiah's stuff to just be thrown out on the street. He's like, take everything. I don't want even, uh, you know, a penny left of Tobiah's. We need to get it off on the street. Throws Tobiah out, throws his stuff out, which is good. It's a good thing. And then puts all the stuff that should have been in that room, God's resources, back in its rightful place. And we're gonna see throughout our four... Yeah, our four things today that Nehemiah's reactions, I believe we can pull out um, applications and truths of how God deals with, an, with a compromised believer. 
So when you compromise in certain areas, we're going to see Nehemiah's reactions, uh, and we can, I believe that we can take some truths of how God uh, works in the life of someone who does compromise. And number one is that compromise, it grieves God. This is Nehemiah was grieved. Our compromise, our sin, uh, it grieves God. Ephesians chapter four, verse 30 says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. As I said before, that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, that as a believer, God dwells in us. And when we make room in our life for the things that Satan would want us to do, and, and, we, and we invite whatever it might be into our life, and we even say, you can set up here, you can sleep here, then God, it grieves God. He's, he, it, it, our sin hurts God. Sometimes we don't think about that. But it, it's not just God's like this angry God, don't, don't sin. No, it, it's, you're his daughter, you're his son. And so just like when you, when you do something against your parents, it, it grieves them. In a similar way, it, sin really grieves God. Secondly, though, is that God just, it doesn't just hurt God and God doesn't do anything. No, God is someone who, who keeps his temple clean. Uh, we see the example of Jesus, that God cleans house. It's what he does. God keeps his temple clean. John chapter two, verse 15 through 16 says, speaking of Jesus, when he made a whip of cords, yes, literally a whip, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen, poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of merchandise or to, to just sell things. And Jesus and God is in the business of cleaning house. He did it when he was here. And if you and I are the temple of the Holy Spirit, then I believe that that's what he wants to do in our life. And if you are a believer, then you've experienced that. You've experienced maybe you did compromise in an area. God exposed that and God cleaned house. That he did something in your life to, to be able to get, right? He kicked the Tobias out. Oh my gosh, I'm thankful that God does that in our life. I'm thankful that he doesn't let us, uh, you know, those Tobias stay in our life. Uh, because you know, I mean, come on. If you can remember from chapter four and the schemes and the plots that Tobiah and Sanballat had, you know this was a ploy. You know, his first step was, okay, I'm gonna, you know, make room. I'm gonna start staying in the storehouse and who knows from there. Yet God would have none and he uses Nehemiah to clean house. Second compromise, you guys ready? You guys sure? Except I didn't hear anything. You guys ready? Yes. Number two, that they compromise by neglecting service to God. And remember, this is a progression. It started with making room for the enemy. And a natural byproduct of making room for the enemy is neglecting the service of God. If you can remember to last week, chapter 10, there were a few different things, specific things that they signed that they would commit to, that they would do or not do. And one of the specific things is that they literally said word for word that they would not neglect the house of our God. Yet this look at verses 10 through 14 to see this is exactly what happened. Verse 10 of chapter 13 says, I also realized, right, Nehemiah speaking, that the portions for the Levites had not been given them. For each of the Levites and the singers who did the work had gone back to his field. 
So I contended with the rulers. It means he got, uh, he, he kind of got in their face and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their place. He wasn't messing around. Then old Judah brought the tithe of the grain and the new wine and the oil to the storehouse, the things that were to be there. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouse, uh, let's see how this goes, uh, Shlemiah, the priest, and Zadok, the scribe, and of the Levites, Pedadiah, and next to him was Hanan, the son of Zakur, the son of Mataniah, for they were considered faithful, and their task was to distribute to their brethren. You guys see what's happening? Is that by making room for Tobiah, the stuff that was to go to, you know, the Levites, which were just people that ministered in the temple, singers, gatekeepers. These are people who made sure that the house of God was clean. They made sure that there was the worship happening, right? Kind of like our worship leaders. Or there's these different people and they were actually there full time. They were there all the time to be able uh, to really um, give all their effort. But what was happening is that because that room was cleared out for the enemy, all that stuff just kind of got put to the side and the things that were to go to those serving in the temple, they started to get neglected. So much so that the singers, the gatekeepers, the Levites, the different people who cleaned and who made sure that worship was happening, what happened to them is that they had to go back to their, they had to go to the field and find a job. And because they had to find a job, now the, the temple wasn't as clean. Now the temple, now worship wasn't happening as it should. And these things began to be neglected and forgotten about. And when you start to make room for the enemy and sin in your life, serving God is the first thing to go. It just, this is so true. And I've seen it in my life and I've seen it in the life of others. Is that one of the best key, when, when you start seeing, maybe you were serving God at one point, but now it's just not like, it's not a big deal to you. Or maybe it's declined. Usually that's because it's being pushed out by something else. And we love to mask it. We love to say why and give excuses. But at the end of the day, guys, we, you know, we, we say things like, well, I'm just, I'm too busy. Or we say things like, uh, I have too much work to do. Or there's too many demands or I'm too stressed or my life is too full. And we stop giving and we stop caring, and we, and we give room to the enemy in our life, and we push out serving God. And now, there's some legitimate reasons. There's different seasons of life. I know that. But what kind of priority does serving God, if any, have in your life? And I don't just mean just serving at the church, but just, and, and even in your everyday week, are there things that you do for the Lord? Guys, God's house back then, the temple, was the very uh, symbol to the whole nation that God's presence was, was there, was with them. And so when they began to neglect the work of the temple, really what they were doing is they were just neglecting God entirely. They, they for, were forgetting him. They abandoned what they had committed. And so for you, uh, have you neglected serving God in your life? That's a question only you can answer. Have you neglected serving God in your life? Has has Serving God been put on the back burner or is it not a big deal? Is it a low priority? Well, I have sports or I have this or I have that. Good things in our life can, can become rooms uh, for the enemy to dwell in. 
And, there, and honestly, we can cover it up with all this stuff, but at the end of the day, it's because we compromised. It's because the commitment that we may have genuinely made, something else began to push it out. What's, what's pushing out serving God in your life? Hopefully nothing. Hopefully there's no rooms. But we again see Nehemiah's response, and he just simply, he finds some faithful guys. He says, okay, uh, you're going to be the treasurer now. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. And he just reappoints people that, that would do the job that other people were not willing to do. And this is how God is with you and me. He calls us. There's specific things, I believe, for each one of you. And I don't know them. I could help you maybe find them and pray through them. But right now, I believe, yes, you're in junior high. Yeah, you can serve God. There are things that God wants you to be busy about doing. But I believe some of you neglect them for a variety of reasons, whatever excuses. But if you neglect them to the point of just not doing them, God will find someone else and you will miss out on the blessing. God invites us to serve him and God invites you to do certain things. But if you're not willing to, God's gonna find someone else. It's just how he works. He's looking for people who are willing and loyal. Number three, you ready for it? Yes? You guys taking notes? Okay. Nehemiah verses, chapter 13, verses 15 through 23. Oh my gosh. 15 through 22, number three, shows us that they compromise by putting selfish desires over obedience. Selfish desires over obedience. Let's read verses 15 through 22, not 23. <laughs> it says, in those days I saw people in Judah. So Nehemiah kind of leaves the temple area now and he's like, okay, let's see what else is uh, you know, messed up around here. Let's see if there's any other areas of compromise. And so he's checking on things. And he says, in those days I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and loading donkeys with wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of burdens. It means that they were doing business on the Sabbath, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them about the day on which they were selling provisions. Men of Tyre, it was a city in the north, dwelt there also, who brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said to them, what evil thing is this that you do by which you profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers do thus and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on the city? Yet you bring added wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So it was at the gates of Jerusalem as it began to be dark before the Sabbath that I commanded the gates to be shut. He shuts the city gates and charged that they must not be open till after the Sabbath. Then I posted some of my servants at the gates so that no burdens would be brought in on the Sabbath day. Now the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. It means that there are people waiting to get into the city to sell on the Sabbath. And it says, then I warned them and said, to them, why do you spend the night around the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. <laughs> he is not messing around. From that time on, they came no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should go and guard the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. And then he prays. He says, remember, O oh my God, concerning this also and spare me according to the greatness of your 
mercy. You're like, what's going on here? It was the Sabbath. It was the Sabbath issue again. One of the other things that they had committed to in chapter 10 was that they would be obedient to the Sabbath. Uh, does anyone know the, what, what, what is the Sabbath command? What, is, what does God ask the children of Israel to do? Thomas. Okay, what, what does that mean, though, for them to observe it? Give me, give me some examples of what they were supposed to do to make sure that they were observing. Anyone know? Yeah. Yeah, they were to kind of just rest, hang out, chill, take the day to kind of worship God and not do any chores, not do any uh, business type stuff, to rest. This was a command, and it was a good one. This is a great command. It was simple. It was clear. Um, yet the people were not able to obey it. And what's interesting about the Sabbath command is that it's so beneficial. And it's obviously beneficial. Like, hey, take a day. Who doesn't like a rest day? Rest days are great. Hey, kick up on the couch. Like, like literally do nothing. Like, that's what God was telling the people. And they couldn't even obey that. They couldn't obey something that was obviously beneficial to them because they were unwilling to believe what God had told them. See, they saw what they were missing out on and not what God had given them. And how often is that true with sin in our life? That we, we, we sin because we think we're gonna miss out on something. And so we gotta, we gotta do something different than what God's asked us to do. And it boils down to because we don't really believe what he's told us. We don't trust that his way uh, is best. And so for the people, right, people, so I don't know if you know, but the Sabbath, the way that the Jewish calendar, the way that they did days was not from uh, how we do, the 24-hour type. It was 24 hours, but it was different. So the Sabbath would start uh, Friday evening when the sun went down and would go all the way till Saturday evening when the sun went down. It was from Friday evening to Saturday evening was when they were not supposed to trade. But as you know, Saturday is usually a busy day, especially for even business. And so people from other uh, cities would come in, uh, people that maybe were not Jewish or did not care about the Sabbath. They'd come in and be like, hey, you got a deal? You know, I don't know what they traded back then. One goat for two fish, uh, you know, whatever it was. But they would try to trade in this way. And they would be like, well, that's a good deal. And so they begin to trade and do work. And they would be doing their jobs during when they were supposed to rest. And so because of what they would appear as something that would be more beneficial to them, they weren't trusting God when God said, rest, do this. This is what I want you to do. And it was for their own purposes, yet they couldn't contain their desire for more. And how often is that true for, for sin for us? Like it's, we just want more. We want more than what God's told us we can have. And it, we don't trust him that his way is best. And we see Nehemiah's response Again, I think is a picture how, how God responds, that he reminds the people. He goes and he says, look, this is the exact sin that got us in this whole thing. One of, the, one of the many sins that the people were doing on such a consistent basis when God had sent the Babylonians to conquer them, sent them to the captivity for those 70 years, uh, one of the reasons was that they, they just didn't keep the Sabbath. For about 500 years, they didn't keep one Sabbath that this was a consistent thing that they were really messing up on. And so Nehemiah reminds them, hey, don't you remember the reason why our city and our nation, the reason why we're under someone else's rule is because 
the people, our ancestors, they didn't do this. And you're doing the same thing. And so he began to remind them of the sting of sin. And this is something that you and I so often forget about. And isn't it true where you say, say you sin, there's something that happens, you compromise in some area, you feel the full consequences of that. And then like six months later or a month later or a week later or a day later, that you do it all over again. And you're like, oh man, yeah, that was really bad the first time. <laughs> I don't know why I did this again, but we forget this thing of sin. And so God, I think is good about reminding us that. Says, hey, like remember, remember last time? I, and this is what I've seen that God do in my own personal life last time, remind us, showing us where it ends, where sin leads. And God bless you. The second thing that we see Nehemiah do with this Sabbath, he, he kind of puts some guards up. He literally puts guards up. He puts people saying, hey, make sure people aren't doing this and sinning in this way. We're gonna shut this down. And so right Friday evening would happen. He'd say, let's, let's shut the gates. No one in and out. No, none of the people that, that are coming and even, even the people that would camp outside, he kind of rebuked them, even saying that I'm gonna lay some hands on you and no, not to pray. Hey, this, was, this was more serious kind of hands. And we see uh, that this is what God, God is pretty good in our life of helping us put some of those safeguards up giving us wisdom and, and giving us things. Hey, this is, this is gonna help guard from falling into that sin again. And this is how I think God wants to deal with us in our compromise. Fourth thing, you guys ready? Okay, come on, this is my fourth time. You're supposed to like, give me something. Are you guys ready? All right, fourth, that they compromise. There we go, like it, Aaron. Uh, they compromise in having holiness and purity become abnormal. And remember, this is a progression Remember their sin, this is a downward spiral that one thing led to another where honestly, holiness, the idea of being like God, godliness, being pure before him, just started to become abnormal from the people. You guys know what abnormal means, right? A lot of you are pretty abnormal. No, I'm just kidding. Um, it, abnormal means simply something that's not normal. That holiness and purity was rare to find among the people at this point. That, they, that their compromise has brought them to a place of, I'm sure, literally, they, they thought they would never do this. This is, again, one of the things that they committed not to do uh, was to enter Mary. Look at verse 23, and we'll read down to the end of chapter 13, the end of Nehemiah. You guys ready? All right. It says, in those days, so now he moves on to the next thing. He's still observing, trying to figure out, okay, how bad are things? Well, he begins to walk into the houses of people and see families. And he says, in those days, I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Remember, those are countries who are sworn enemies of God, hate God, hate what he stands for, hate his people. Yet, now we see that they begin to marry these women from there. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod and could not speak the language of Judah, which was Hebrew but spoke according to the language of one or the other people. So again, Nehemiah, he contends with them and cursed them, struck some of them, pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, saying, you shall not give your daughters as wives to their sons, nor take their daughters uh, for your sons or yourselves. Did not Solomon, he gives them an example. He said, did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin by these things, by taking foreign women? Yet among many nations, there was no king like him who is beloved of his God and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, pagan women caused even him to sin 
Should we then hear of your doing all this great evil, transgressing against our God by marrying pagan women? And one of the sons of Joida, the son of Eliashib, the high priest who we just talked about, was a son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I drove him from me. And he ends with a prayer. Remember them, O my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them of everything pagan. I also assign duties to the priests and the Levites, each to a service and to bringing the wood offerings and the first fruits at appointed times. Remember me, O my God, for good. Uh, this time, man, they, they really blew it. And Nehemiah's heated. It was pretty, God bless you again. It was obvious that Nehemiah was pretty heated, right? It says that he came over, began to literally beat them and pull their hair. And it's kind of crazy. And I'll explain that kind of stuff in a moment. Uh, but they really compromise here. It says that they marry these women from these other cultures and religions and that they began to have children with these, with these people, right? They're married. And that they began not teaching them the Hebrew language, but teaching them the language of these other, the other religions. And this is the idea. The idea is this, that they started to integrate or bring the things of the world in so much that it pushed out the things of the Lord. That they're raising their children, not in the ways of the Lord, but in the ways of these other cultures. That so much so that they weren't even teaching them Hebrew, which was the, right, the language which um, they had the, the, the law and the commandments and those different things. And they began to bring in so much of the world that it pushed out the things of the Lord. They compromised. They didn't follow God's design. They started to mix the things of the world with the things of the Lord. And it just, guys, they don't mix. And so once again, uh, Nehemiah is just at his, at his end here. And it says that, right, he, he, we talked about it. Um, but again, I, I still think that this is an example of how God deals with a compromising believer. No, not that God's going to come down and pull your hair and beat, beat you uh, in that way. But we'll see that in a moment that God does, is a God of discipline. And because he's a good God, he's a God of discipline. Now, discipline looks different than we don't, we, you know, I don't get spanked by God when, you know, something happens. You, that won't happen to you either. Uh, but he will let us feel the sting of our sin, like we talked about a moment ago. And he will let us feel usually the full force of that. Uh, but we see that this anger in Nehemiah. And it's almost like, oh man. You know, we, we talked about a handful of weeks ago. I don't remember when. Maybe it was on a Wednesday. But we talked about how anger isn't a sin. You guys know that? Anger is not a sin. Now when it's uncontrolled and when it is anger that um, is, is quick to anger, then that anger turns into sin. But God, the Bible describes him as an angry God. Not only is he a God of love, he's also perfectly angry. He's like, what does that mean? Well, let me share a verse with you. Psalm, verse, uh, Psalm chapter seven, verse 11 through 13. Often I find we do not see God like this. We don't see him hating sin in the way that he describes to us. The Bible says that God is a just judge, meaning that he's gonna bring justice. And God is angry with the wicked every day. Angry. If he does not turn back, the Bible speaking of those who are wicked and living that lifestyle, he will listen to language. He will sharpen his sword. He bends his bow and makes it ready. He also prepares himself instruments of death. He makes his arrows into fiery shafts. Now, this is language showing that, guys, God 
hates sin. Never get that wrong. Never get that mixed up. Never come to the point of saying, well, it was just a small compromise. I just sinned a little bit. Now, sin is a big deal before God. So, such a big deal that if it was not for Jesus, you would be paying an eternity of punishment for even one sin. Yet think how good Jesus is to come and, and take upon the wrath that you and I deserve. God, if God is good and God is just, then, he, then sin has to be dealt with. And in Jesus, he dealt with it. He took that punishment. Uh, but for those that don't repent and don't have Jesus, they will feel the full brunt of God's wrath and anger. Read the book of Revelation. Um, it is no joke. It is no uh, laughing matter. But thankfully that God is our father and that as believers, we have Jesus. He has taken that ultimate punishment and God's wrath. Yet because God is a good father, if he does not discipline us, he's not a good father. Your dad, if he does not, if, if you've not experienced discipline in your life from your dad or your mom, they have not been good parents to you. And I will say that right to them. You need discipline. Children need discipline, right, Joe? Yeah, Joe's got a couple kids. They need discipline. They need spanking. They need talking to. They need to feel it. They need to, they sometimes literally, I mean, that's why, you know, spanking happens. You know, that's biblical, right? Not beating, but spanking, right? And they need to feel the sin of those decisions now when it's not so bad so that later they won't make those same decisions when the consequences are even worse. And I think God is so gracious to us. And I don't know if this is true, okay? This is not, I don't have a verse for this. So just know this is just my kind of opinion is that for the believer, I think God lets us feel the consequences of our sin in this life, sometimes greater than other people. What do I mean? I think he sometimes lets us, man, when a believer is walking and they compromise in an area, it's like, he's gonna let you feel the whole consequence of that. So that for the next time, when you think about doing that again, that's gonna be reminded and you'll be reminded of that thing. And that's good. God is good in that way that he would come alongside us and try to get us on his path. And so again, the big idea of today is that a genuine commitment doesn't ensure an uncompromised finish. What are you actively doing to follow through with your commitments? For some, I love that you've made commitments to the Lord and committed your life to him. What are you actively doing to make sure that you will not compromise in those commitments? And just two, two last thoughts and we'll, we'll close this series and close this book. Did you notice the few times in chapter 13 when Nehemiah pauses to pray? There's something that he says, I think three, three times where he says, he says, remember me. He says, remember me for the good that I have done. And it can be discouraging where you, you come to the end of 13, you're like, man, like all of Nehemiah's work was a waste. Not true. It was not a waste. That God saw Nehemiah's work. And even though we don't see things sometimes that go the way that we hope or expected, God sees the work that we put in and it's not for nothing. And we need to trust him with the future. We need to, uh, with the results, because God is good and he's always best. And so chapter 13, though this book ends in this, man, compromise and the people messed up, God, no doubt, saw Nehemiah's work. He saw his efforts. 
He saw his care, his love, his, and he heard his prayers. And same for you. Maybe there's something in your life that you've been putting effort into for the Lord and you're not seeing any results. You keep doing it because God sees, God remembers. Though you might not see the results and it's like you could come to the end of 13 and be like, wow, Nehemiah didn't, he shouldn't have even done what he did, but it's not true. Um, it's not true because God sees it and God will use that. And my second thought, and then we'll close, is that it can be, you know, at least for me, chapter 13 is like, man, okay, the, the people compromise. And chapter 13 is the last historical chapter in the Old Testament, meaning from chapter 13 all the way till the New Testament, there's no other books written. Uh, it's known in history as the period of a 400-year silence. For approximately 400 BC, all the way to 400, um, or all the way to when Jesus came, right? Zero uh, AD, um, or so, it's some year like that. But about 400 years, God is silent. And the Old Testament, in a sense, ends not with necessarily Malachi, but with Nehemiah 13, where the people couldn't keep their commitments. And I think the picture here is this for us, is that without Jesus, we're just gonna be a life full of broken promises and commitments. That I think it shows man's real need, religion without the relationship to Jesus, that the law isn't enough. It's not enough just to know what to do, but we need truly the power of Christ and we need him in our lives. And this showed that the Jews needed the Messiah. It shows man's real need. And without Jesus, we're left with broken promises. But with Jesus, those commitments we made, I believe God is able to see us through uncompromised. I think it's possible to live an uncompromised Christian life. And you can do it if you do it with Jesus. If you do it not perfect, you won't be perfect. You'll mess up. Trust me. You can come and ask me and I'll share with you my imperfections. Not really, but maybe one or two. Not perfect, but uncompromised. My plan is just that, okay, if I can just get to the finish line of my life without compromising in this way, man, I... I'll be excited to see Jesus. I'm gonna be excited to see him either way, but let's pray. Father, we come before you and we thank you for this time in your word and this book and this series. And we just pray that, um, that we truly, that you'd keep us, God. You, I, I know verses in your, in your word that say that you're able to keep us faultless until, that, until we're presented before you. Lord, I pray that for me, I pray that for every person in this room. Lord, that, that when Satan comes and entices us and and wants room in our life, that we would shut the door, that we throw out the key, and we would say that it's occupied by you, that you would occupy every area, every room, every nook, every cranny, every, every part of our life, Lord, we want you to be all-encompassing. Lord, we don't want you just to be a part of our life, Lord, we want you to be our life. So we worship you now. You are our great God and Savior. You are our Father in heaven. You are a king and our master, and we just, we just want to worship you now, God. In Jesus' name, amen.